Before we start, just a quick warning that this episode includes accounts of physical and sexual assault. Hi Dad. Hi Celine. Did you know that you and I are about the same age if you count time living in the world? What do you mean? Well, as you know, I left a high control religious group around the time you were born. So you're in your 20s then? (laughs) Well, maybe in my head. The thing is though, because I had all of my beliefs about morals, science, politics, religion, philosophy provided for me, I spent the last 25 years trying to work out what I should think about a whole bunch of stuff and work out what's going on. No one knows what's going on, Dad. (laughs) Well, I think it's about time we did. What Should I Think About is a podcast that sets off on a lofty goal to make sense of the complicated, contradictory, confusing but wonderful thing we call the world. Hello and welcome to the What Should I Think About podcast. I'm Celine. And I'm Stephen. And uh, today we welcome Erica Bornman, author of the book Mission of Malice, which recounts her experience growing up within and finally breaking free from a religious mission called Quasi Zabantu, based in South Africa. Welcome to the What Should I Think About podcast, Erica. Thank you so much, Stephen and Celine, and it's wonderful to be here with you. First of all, I want to say congratulations on the book. Um, We kind of did this arrangement fairly quickly, so I, I had to get uh, get your book quite quickly and uh, read it as fast as I could um but it wasn't a chore it was beautifully written and and incredibly emotional so fantastic book um this won't be the first time I say this to our listeners buy the book um we'll put mm-hmm. a link onto the uh onto how to get the book um it's available through all the normal ways I'm sure and um, so strong strongly recommend that uh, our listeners get that and also there's a documentary by um the south african news outlet news 24 so that's not the bbc one that's uh that's the south african news 24 um which i've started to watch so again that's perhaps something listeners can can seek out it's it is behind a little bit of a paywall but it's not very expensive so you can have a if you're interested have a look at that um so maybe you could tell us a little bit about the group, please, Erica, and um, your your kind of early experience with it, because I'm not sure our listeners will be familiar with it. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about that, please. Certainly. So the group was started, kind of came about um, in 1966 when there was a German South African, Erlo Stegen, and he was preaching in what was then Zululand. And remember, we are now in the 1960s in apartheid South Africa. Mm-hmm. And um, they he, they purport that there was a revival. God came down and healed everything from people being blind, and he even raised one woman up from the dead. Apparently, right. um, mm-hmm. and then the gathering started getting really large, and they formed a community on the border of Zululand. So, um, which meant that white people and black people could like both get there quite easily mm-hmm. and then over the years um it has grown and grown and grown and there were there were huge congregations in europe germany in particular france um, the netherlands hungary australia the us they kind of spread their message far and wide and mm. um it's a it's a very strict 
um, evangelical cults. So the, yeah. the, the, the kind of evangelical cults in the US um, or the, they call them high control groups, but mm. I like to call them a cult because they are a cult <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah. So they very, very, very strict um, about yeah. everything. And we can get into that. But mm. then in the 1980s, um, the South African authorities decided that they were going to introduce sex education into the schools and the people of Kwasizabantu. So Kwasizabantu literally means the place where people are helped in Zulu. So Kwasizabantu decided they were going to start a school um, so that they could control what the children learned. And so they started a school. And it was supposedly one of South Africa's first multiracial schools. This is still in apartheid days. And in 1986, when it was established, there were only black learners. And then in 1987, a few white kids joined, and that was me at the age of 15. But my association with the place started when I was around nine years old. And it it was at the school that the most egregiously horrible things uh, took place that I witnessed. And... Um, I matriculated, which is our final year of school at the age of 18, and I was immediately given um, 45 little five-year-olds to teach them English. 44 of them were Zulu, one of them was Afrikaans, and it was actually a very progressive idea at the time that they could start their schooling in English as opposed to in Zulu, because that would stand them in good stead in the future. And so, but then at the age of 21, I literally escaped. Um, and started making my life um, away from the place. And to give you context, I I turned fifty last year, so um, you know it's a good it's it's almost three decades ago. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> okay, that's that's that, that's a good um, uh, overview of, of the group. Um, yeah. So it's um, I, I suppose from from my perspective, from our perspective, we've got this. Um, this fundamentalist group cult um that has a it's got a kind of compound where people live uh, this school is that is that like a dorm a boarding school as we would call it in this country that's right for the, so, for so the, the kids life. live there yes. yes yeah and um and then outside of that there are these other um that there's there's so there's people that belong to you you say ksb in the book quite a lot so i feel um, justified in um in abbreviating it to ksb so there's a lot of these ksb groupings throughout the world in various different communities that are not quite the same that they they uh they live their lives out in the world i suppose in the community um That that's correct, and in South Africa as right. well, they have a large following who don't live there, but who go there yeah. as often as they can. Many of the overseas branches and some in South Africa have actually broken away now from them. Um, but yes, yeah. Okay, and it's um, it's at this place though you you get um, you get brought here by your parents um, who uh, think that this is a this is a place that's really that's you know that's really going to help them and uh, they're also very uh they have this literal literal missionary zeal mm. um which is the first bit that's heartbreaking because you end up getting left there yeah. so tell us a little bit about that erica 
Yeah, so I was nine years old and my brother was 11 and my sister 13. And my um, parents decided to go to France to learn French because my dad wanted to be a missionary in French-speaking Africa. And mm. they decided to leave the three of us at Kwasisabantu because at the time there were other white children living there who was we were bused to school, which was 50 kilometers away. So we were bused there every day and back. Um, and my parents left us there thinking they were leaving us in in good care but it mm. wasn't we were we were subjected to fear mongering insane insanely so and if it it gives a good indication to say that at the age of 10 I started wetting my bed again and I mean that mm. is such a sure sign as an adult now I know that is such a sure mm. sign that there is something terribly wrong so it wasn't like it was um something that people knew about the state of these schools it was very like purposefully hidden yeah so the school hadn't actually been established yet we were going to a normal government school and I just always at that school I pretended that everything was fine the indoctrination started early because firstly my parents left me there so and my parents could do no wrong secondly um so whatever happened to me kind of in my child's mind my parents condoned and um mm-hmm. you know and I never spoke to my dad especially I never spoke about what we had seen and endured we would witness back at the mission not at the school we would witness uh children being beaten in public for misdemeanors there was one incident I write about in my book where an 8-year-old girl had been seen stealing toffees, taking sweets from someone's suitcase. Um, And we were all called into what they call the upper room. It's like this room, meeting room. And Hmm. um, she was supposed to get beaten now in public, which is what they did back then. And the, the, the woman leading the charge um said no hang on this is too egregious a sin for just a beating and she sent someone and he returned with a big butcher knife and she said in the bible they talk about um thieves having their hands cut off so you know choose either the knife or the the beating and the scary thing about that is that i didn't doubt that they were entitled to cut her hand off. Now, obviously, they didn't. They just gave her a vicious, vicious mm. beating. And, you know, I'm 50 years old. When I grew up as a child, we got hidings from our parents. Um, I think just about every child in, that I know that my age, South African, would get hidings. This wasn't like a hiding, though. That the, um, An adult would hold her arms down, another adult would hold her legs down, and the third adult would be standing above her, beating down on her with a plastic plumbing pipe that very often was filled with sand to make it to make it um heavier you know so Mm. we witnessed serious serious abuse the thing though Mm. is that it's so indoctrinated into you that these people god spoke to them they have the only way they have Mm. the truth um and so and as a young child you know when you're taught that you don't doubt it. I only realized that what I had endured and, and witnessed was abuse two years after I ran away 
so by the, at the age of 23, mm. I recognized mm. the abuse. I've had, I had a teacher from that time who was at Stanger contact me after my book came out and saying that she had no idea that this is what I was going through and she's so sorry. And I said to her, but you wouldn't have known. I didn't even know that what they were doing was wrong. I thought it was sanctioned mm. by God, you know. So, mm. yeah. yeah. And that's that's where beliefs come in, isn't it? Um, I, I, I mean, beliefs in themselves... Um, Obviously, we we say that we want to respect people's beliefs, but they do have consequences. And some of these beliefs led to this sort of behavior. So um, maybe you could talk a little bit about some of those beliefs that lead them to thinking and you internalizing that this is OK. You know, what, what's their justification for, for this behavior? So they believe when the revival came down that God changed the rules and they are the only ones who have this changed rules, mm. which they're obviously not. They're not as unique as they think they are, I've discovered, mm. you know, after leaving sure. and reading about other high control groups. One of the main ways in which they diverged from normal Christianity, if I could call it that way, is their belief that you have to confess your sins um, not the way that the Catholics do it, uh, to, to mm. an, kind of an anonymous priest behind the screen. They, mm. You actually have to have what they call a counselor. And this person is simply an adult who has risen high enough in the ranks that they consider him godly, him or her godly. They have no training to deal with any issues or any problems, right? You have to confess every single sin. So if I... Um, chatted to a boy for example because um contact between the sexes on is not allowed um i was not allowed to have friends who were boys i was not allowed to talk to them um except of course in and in a supervised setting um so if for example i thought oh neil's handsome or he's nice you know i would have to confess that sin if my mother asked me to wash the dishes and i you know didn't feel like doing mm. it that is a, an egregious sin and I have to confess it. And we were, it was indoctrinated into us that if we go to bed without having confessed our sin and God comes to take us that night, which we knew happens all the time, um, then we would go straight to hell. The other thing is yep. that if, you, if I saw you, Celine, doing something that I know is a sin and mm. um, I didn't confess it to my counselor, I was as guilty as you and I would be going to hell for witnessing your sin and not snitching on you. So it's a, um, they, they, that's another way of control, of course, because they know absolutely everything that is going on in absolutely everybody's life at absolutely every moment. So, yeah. um, and, and they, they preach God's wrath a lot more than they preach God's love. Um, I feared God with every fiber of my being. That Bible verse where it says that he knows every strand of hair on your head, uh, I didn't see that as a good thing. For me, it was a very ominous thing. Like God was always present, always watching. And I, I cannot describe the fear that you grow up in. And they would show us a movie called The Burning Hell, which depicted in graphic detail um, what, obviously the filmmaker's idea of hell was and we were forced mm. to sit through this and to not we weren't allowed to fidget or look away or close our eyes so it was ingrained into me that I was bad I was evil 
God will save me, but only if I confess my sins as soon as they happen. So that's, that includes thought sins, mm. I suppose, isn't it? So that's, that's, um, so let's just, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, it's hard to, that, that must have been a really painful session where you sit with a, uh, I mean, it seemed to be a man most of the time mm. and Very tell funny. him all the things that you think you've done wrong over that day. Yeah. Um, what if you say something that um, that that is going to demand punishment? Would that would that then happen, or is the fact that you've okay? So the fact that you've given it up doesn't mean that you're not going to still get punished for it. No, absolutely not. And if someone okay. if someone snitches on you before you've come forward, mm. oh my word, then the punishment is ten times worse. Now. They're all running at the end to try and like get to the person first. If you know someone yeah. saw you or something, yeah. <laughs> the the race is on. You say in your book, which I think yeah. is a great little phrase. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. It's, I've got to tell them before I know my friend saw me look at this mm. photograph that I shouldn't have looked at or something. Yeah. Uh, mm. Oh, terrifying. And, and this brings me to a point that people raise, and 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 the mission raises very often, um, because as we'll we're going to discuss, is I've been instrumental in in bringing all this out in the media. Um, but the one thing they say is she left almost three decades ago. You can't believe anything she says. It's not. It's you know, like how do I know it's still happening there? Well, yep. the school's code of conduct. I saw the twenty nineteen code of conduct. And snitching is still in that code of conduct. Expose bad behavior. That, you know, it's, yeah. it may not yeah. sound very ominous to anyone else, but to those of us who grew up there, that is, what, that is, that is a very ominous thing to have in your code of conduct. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, as I said, it's fed by these underpinning beliefs. So obviously, uh, you know, my background as, a, as an ex-Jehovah's Witness um, I've never experienced anything like that at all. But I, I think that the the underpinning beliefs I certainly do recognise, you know, and the the fear that there is and there is a level of of snitching, even if it's not directly oh, going yeah. to an elder, but everyone's talking to each other and everyone knows everyone's business. Like it's a bit of a mm. a joke sometimes, but it's it can be quite serious, you know, mm. having people be like, Oh, have you seen such and such body she's very good friends with him now isn't she and that they've been you know doing the um like you know going knocking on doors together quite often i guess they're together you know like things mm. get stirred so it sounds like gossip but it can have you know it, it can go further than that though can't it is the thing so mm. it's it's the same tools i guess being taken advantage of yeah yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, so let's um, let, let's perhaps go a little bit forward in in your story. So, uh, again, I, I recommend people buy your book because obviously there's lots of uh, detail in there. Um, but um, you you then obviously as you start to grow up, um, you talk quite a lot about how women are seen and treated, and um, uh, I know that's something that interests you, Celine, obviously, but mm-hmm. uh, would you like to tell us a little bit about that part of your experience? Yes. So the lesson I learned very thoroughly is that a woman is a temptress. She is, mm. she is there to trip up the men, and I have to do everything in my power to not be a stumbling block for a man of God. It's my responsibility to not make a man of God stumble. 
And um, I, I got to the point where I actually didn't want to be me. Um, I didn't want to be that person that was going to cause others to sin. I also um, was almost expelled from school and my mother would have kicked me out the house as well at the age of 16 because I wasn't confessing my sins. I was forced to get a counselor and I chose quite badly because I chose a married man. He must have been close to 30 around there um, and uh, so 15, at least probably 15 years my senior, a married man with children and he started grooming me. Now, because Kwasi Sabanji doesn't allow sex education of any kind, but I mean any kind. I didn't even know how menstruation works. I mean, I did. I had no clue about anything. Um, quite literally, it's it's scary to to think that I knew so little, but it's the truth. Anyway, so because I'm completely defenseless. Firstly, he has a man of God um, who's touching me inappropriately, but. I don't know that he's touching me inappropriately because he's a man of God, so he can't do anything wrong. So if I feel that there's something wrong, then that is, that's me. I'm the one who is evil and sinful. And, mm -hmm. and, um, and yeah, I, I eventually I, I talk at length in my book, how it came about, mm -hmm. but it came about that Airlaw, the head of the mission became aware of this. And I was called the slut and the homewrecker and the Delilah. And I was the one who was censured, not him even though I later found out that the the leadership had been aware of his sexual misconduct for many years before I even started going to him as a counselor, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so as a woman, look, they refute it. They say, but there are women in leadership positions. Yes, but few and far between. And those women are actually, I find quite a lot scarier than, than the men, to be honest. They are mm -hmm. the, absolute disciples of the patriarchy and they enforce it with as much if not more vigor than than the men so a woman is taught that she is inferior to men so if a man says something who am i to say no that's not that's not it you know and my duty yeah. is to be a helpmeet for a man and and not bring him down into sin I got my first proposal um, when I finished writing my last school exam, and then, and how they get how they get married there is the man goes to the leadership and says, um, "I feel God wants me to marry this girl." Very often, it's the pretty girls that God picks out first. Weirdly enough, mm -hmm. you know, the, the outgoing ones, you know, and um, yeah. then the leaders of the mission come to the girl and says, "Okay, so and so says he feels it's God's will." for you guys to get married please go and pray about it and let us know and then so me then I went back to Elo and I said no I'm afraid God didn't tell me the same thing <laughs> so I don't know where I got the courage from but God changed his mind another two times because I was supposedly to be the bride of three yeah. different men they don't do polygamy mm. polygamy mm. there but yeah mm. Mm. Uh, again, there's a bit in the book. I think it's around um, the. You could correct me if I'm wrong, but the fine one of the final times that you're told that um, you know you've got to marry this this guy, and I think you you say something. Oh, I didn't. I didn't discuss this one with God or something like that. I thought it was just brilliant. Mm. Loved it. Yeah. Um, but by then, obviously, you've you've grown a bit, and you, you're you you've got a bit more agency. You feel you've got more agency, but it's that um, it, it's that system that is is creating the conditions so this is one of the questions i wanted to ask you actually was 
Um, how much of this is that individuals are essentially gaming a system, are um, you know finding ways to, to to get what they want out of the system? How much of it is that people are doing what they think is right? So I suppose how much how much is is knowingly terrible behavior and how much is 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 that they think this is the right way to do things i mean you can't know no one can know i suppose but what's your gut feel about this so my gut feel about this is that 95 percent of the people and i'm talking about the adults who get involved um do so out of a definite feeling that they are doing the right thing. They want to do good in the world and they are, they are helping God's cause and, and they believe that they are doing good. And then there is the small percentage who, that as, as KSB points out, you get in all society who then they game the system, like my counselor who gamed the system so that he could abuse me. But the system allowed him unfettered access That's to right. me. And I don't believe that, I think the majority of people who join, join from a good place, but I don't think that the leadership, and in particular, Al Ostegen, who started the whole thing, I very much doubt that he was a very good man right from the get-go, but that is just my Mm. gut feel. Um, Yeah. yeah, yeah. But the fact that once that comes to light, that, that, that was being done to you, and you're told that oh that's not right we're going to do something about this um and then the next thing you know is essentially it's been brushed under the carpet and you're the problem yeah. um that that sort of suggests well strongly suggests that actually there is a knowingness about this it's it's not just you absolutely know. my friend and her family lived there and over the years they've all left and escaped uh, she was a child there at, when I was a child there, and her father beat her mercilessly. Um, all all the siblings got got badly beaten by her father, and now he is the one who cries so much about it and has such remorse. And he says he genuinely believed them when they said that in order to help your child get into heaven, you have to beat the mm-hmm. devil out of them. He genuinely mm-hmm. thought. He was helping them attain salvation by beating the living daylights out of them. Um, mm. So he, he is a good man who, who did terrible things, abused his children mm. horribly, but with the best of intentions. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that that idea about beating. I think in, again in your your book you say that there's a a philosophy that you know by the age of three you need to have broken your child essentially. Yes. They believe that you have to break the spirit of a child by the age of three, three mm. years old, and your spirit is already broken. Because if they don't, you get someone like me who comes back and bites them. <laughs> uh. <laughs> it's yeah. just amazing to like hear how like vicious the language is and it do you know what i mean like it, it's it, it doesn't feel as dressed up i suppose as certain other groups it's so so intense but it, i suppose it's said in such a plain way it almost doesn't do you know what i mean it's it's so well if you're used to it if it's if it's every, yeah. the only thing you know you know then it does become it, it's just normalized yeah. isn't it that, that's yeah. the problem yeah. yeah um so you you managed to um uh, to to escape you're 21 
And I mean, one of the big things about our podcast, as you know, Erica, is we like to talk about making sense of the world afterwards. And and there's a big part of your book that is all about that, which is really, really interesting. Um, and uh, can you tell us a little bit about what what you're like when you leave this? You're you're actually an adult. You're a young woman. Um, you've left this group. What are you like at this point? I I've always been very cheerful. My dad called me the family's kirkpropi. Now, kirkpropi is Afrikaans for the cork that you put in a wine, you know, because you push cork, <laughs> you push cork under water and it pops up again. So, right. but by nature, I think I am quite resilient and and I am very cheerful. But and at mm. the mission, I learned how to be a really good actress. So how to pretend that everything's okay when it's not okay. Because if you had a long face there, then your life wasn't right with God. And then, oh my word, then, you know, you don't know what could happen to you. You would be investigated. And so I learned how to be a really good actress um, in masking my feelings. So I, but I didn't know how to talk to men. I didn't even know how to really be. So I was a ball of nerves, although you wouldn't have seen it necessarily. Um, And I just started mimicking what I saw other people doing and the way they spoke, the way they dressed, the way they ate, you know, like absolutely everything. Because yeah. the, the my belief was so strong that if someone hasn't shown me how to do it right, I'm going to do it wrong. I had, I had no self-confidence that I would know how to do anything. Um, and so firstly, I firmly believed I was headed straight to hell anyway and then I kind of thought okay well then I may as well enjoy the ride and so I had some alcohol and I started wearing jeans and I pierced my ears I mean like the first time I wore a pair of jeans I I genuinely thought the that that the lightning strike was going to come down and kill me because we were told these things you know that this is what happens to people when they knowingly leave the the way you know and I knowingly turned my back on God by leaving and so I was going to be punished severely um I mean God's punishment just kept getting deferred you know so I pierced my ears and nothing happened I mean then I started kissing and having sex and nothing happened well literally nothing happened until many years later but yeah (laughs) (laughs) so um, so I was very fearful and I had um, people with PTSD might recognize the term neurogenic tremors, which is when you, when your body shakes uncontrollably, trembles uncontrollably. And I would have that every night as I lay in bed, relaxing, trying to go to sleep. My, my whole body would just shake. Sure. And, um, and when, once that was done, then, then I could fall asleep. Um, I, I used Book Saved Me. Look, I read... I've read voraciously since I was a little girl and books really saved me. I'd read books that other survivors wrote. It doesn't matter what they survived. And I would think if they could come through that, then, then I could. Mm. And, and that's, mm. I think when the first seed was planted that I would one day want to write a book so that it may help other people who have had to give up themselves to show them how mm-hmm. I found myself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the the power of stories. The more we do this podcast, the more you know. I think we we realise how important that that is. That listening to stories, telling your story, discussing each other's stories. I think it it is the way we make sense of 
of everything in our lives. So yeah, I think that's such an Im- mm-hmm. important part of it isn't it um you talk about the first time you you tried to dance um in the book you you get invited onto the dance floor you don't quite know what to do <laughs> no I, I I couldn't move I mean my hips were never allowed to sway you know we were we were yeah. even thought that when you walk as a woman your hips mustn't sway too much and here I now have to try and sway my hips and I looked at the people on the dance floor and they seemed so comfortable in their skins and they were comfortable in their bodies and they were moving and I was like how do you do that wow <laughs> I still have to have a drink or two in me before I hit the dance floor <laughs> I suppose what one uh, sort of question I was thinking as well when you're talking about you felt like you were doing things and, and like punishment was being deferred. You were like, oh, it's not happening. Okay, cool. Um, but so with the process of like starting to, you know, not believe that stuff anymore, was it just more and more time away and things not happening as you thought they would happen that slowly you were like, oh, maybe it's not. Or um, what was that sort of process? Absolutely. And then um, my first real relationship in the book, I call him Samuel, was was with a guy mm-hmm. who he he wasn't religious. He isn't religious at all. And it was the first time that I was actually exposed to a group of people who um, are good people. I can see they are such good, kind, genuine people, but they are not Christian. Like, and it was the first time that I started thinking, hang on, you know, um, I'd always thought that not everybody in the world could possibly go to hell because what about the child in an Indian slum who never hears the word of God, you know? Um, And so that always bothered me. Um, And what about these other Christians, which, so they preached against other churches, especially during the apartheid years, this liberation theology, they were very harsh and criticized it. And they, they preached against, against Archbishop Tutu, who is just such an icon iconically amazing man so it was and they preached against Nelson Mandela and of course I I left just as Nelson Mandela was coming out of prison just before um, our first democratic elections in 1994 so I started seeing all these things that they had told me were so evil and so bad and I could see but they're good you know and then and then that 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 whole mindset but I mean for many years I still believed I was going straight to hell but um Mm -hmm. I, I, when I started, I think what really changed was when I started understanding that what had happened to me was abuse and what was happening to the children there is still abuse. And my, that boyfriend, Samuel, really helped me see it because I would tell him things from my childhood and he would be horrified beyond measure. And it was his, his horror at what for me was ordinary that started opening my eyes to mm-hmm. hang on this this is not right yeah yeah so um in jehovah's witnesses ex jehovah's witnesses uh parlance there's this uh acronym called POMI. have you uh have you come across uh no. you, you could be a POMI. so POMI is a physically out mentally in ah, yes. um and so you can be a pmo as well so physically and mentally out but um it sounds in in that parlance you'd 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 have been a a pomy for quite some time so you've left mm. but mentally you're still 
you know, you're still in it in a way. So you're still waiting for, so for Jehovah's Witnesses, it would be Armageddon, you know, Armageddon's mm. going to come. And every time there's a, a flare up, you know, no, so now lots of POMI people will be worried about Ukraine. You know, that's, that's obviously yeah. going to be, this is the beginning, you know, a couple of years ago, it was COVID and, um, and it's, they're, they're on the lookout for it all the time, even if they've left. So yeah, that can take a long time and actually can, for decades, people can be mm. in that, in that state. So yeah, mm. it's a really awful place to be actually. I think. It is. It's, it's, it's kind of like you're super and hyper vigilant all the time Yeah. because yeah. You know, I lived my life, most of my life I lived in fear. And um, mm. fear is often still my first response to a new situation, but less and less so with therapy, with just living, just being. And mm. um, on the, the day before my 50th birthday, August last year, I had gone, it's, we're still, we were starting to be allowed to travel a little bit, but so with two good mm. girlfriends, I, we went up the West Coast to the secluded place, which was just so beautiful. I lay in bed and I watched the sunrise and I realized that for the first time in my life, I like myself. I like who I am. And it was wow. so breathtakingly amazing. I just cried. And and for, for days afterwards, when I would tell a friend or, or someone about it, I would, I would cry. It was so profound that at the age wow. of 50, I suddenly understand what people say that you have to like yourself. I, I get it mm. now. You have mm. to. And then you kind of become a little bit more unshakable. But yeah. it took me three decades to get to that point yeah. and writing yeah. a book. Mm. <laughs> and this, this is one of the things that you talk about in that book, which is, um, it's funny, I had a, an experience fairly recently with a friend uh, a friend's relative actually and, and you know I came it, we were in a bar and I, I went and got a drink and I came back and I could tell there was a conversation uh, just finishing and, and it was something like you know you need to just get over it sort of thing um, and I know you talk about that in your in your book you know how wrong <laughs> are people when they say that yeah it's I I have um, quite quite a lot of empathy now for people who say that, but I will never mm. say that to someone. I will never mm. say you have to get over it because it is not as simple as that. Like I write in my book, no. it was in the past where my responses were formed. So, you know, right. you can't tell someone you've got to let it go. No, you, you don't ever say that to somebody. Not, not ever, not about anything. You know, we all mm. walk our journeys and, some things you also shouldn't let go. I'm glad that I haven't let go of my outrage mm. at what happens yeah. there because that has mm. enabled me to be an activist um, and to try and make the authorities investigate what is now happening to children there. And if I had let go of my past, yeah. the way that people were urging me to, then change wouldn't happen. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that um, we didn't say was that um, one of the one of the levers that that they had over you was you know very soon after your dad passed away who you absolutely adored mm. that it was you know if you ever want to see your dad again then you know you you can't end up in hell um, and so that's the control they've got over you for everything and that just doesn't go away you know years later of course that's going to still be there yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and it's that, I think for me, one of the worst things they taught me was that I couldn't trust myself. 
that mm. I did not know best, that it was God or the, 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 the pastor or my counselor or my mother who knew what was best for me. I didn't know what's best for me. And I, um, and, and you can't take pride in anything you do because it's always God working through you. So if you do anything good, it's God working through you. But if you do anything bad, well, you're the sinner. You're the evil one. Yeah. Um, and so one of the worst things I think that they did to us um, is they taught us to not trust ourselves. It, it's, it, that is it. I don't know. I look at children now yeah, and, and they have so much self-confidence and I just want to applaud their parents and say, well done. You know, yeah, he might be a brat every now and again, but, but he has self-confidence. <laughs> he believes in himself and he believes that he can say things or she can say things and, and, and say no, you know. That ability to say no, gosh, I think I only learned that in my 30s. And even then I struggled. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just leading on from what you were saying as well about um, like activism and what you're trying to sort of do and achieve. Um, like what is your like, opinion on what you want to be happening in terms of government involvement um, in these sort of groups and cults? Because obviously what is the line, the line or do you want, what, what do you want them to be sort of doing in these situations? Yeah, that's a really interesting thing. And, and many mm -hmm. religious people will say, no, there should be no state interference. But um, South Africa has one of the world's best constitutions. You know, our constitution protects the rights of children, the rights of every marginalized community, <laughs> you know, mm. much more than many constitutions in the world. Mm. And I would argue that where a, uh, a religious community transgresses the constitution of our country, um, the government should step in. And there's great mm. reluctance, of course, because, but, and, and in South Africa, yeah, so maybe I should quickly tell your listeners that, um, so News24 listened to us and they believed us and they did a seven-month investigation and there was a podcast and the documentary you mentioned and many, many articles about this place and they raised awareness and this was in September 2020, that the 19th of September 2020, that Exodus launched. They called it Exodus. Um, and... Then there were a huge outcry and lots of authorities said, okay, they're going to investigate. Okay, they're going to investigate. Mm -hmm. um, that was September 2020. We are now, um, yeah, in 2022. Mm. Mm -hmm. And still waiting, still waiting to hear. Mm -hmm. So Kwasi Sabantu is a huge, multi-million rand enterprise now. They... They have the bottling plant of Aquele, which is South Africa's largest bottled water company. They export avocados to the UK and to the EU. But please don't boycott South African avocados because there are many wonderful avocado farmers in South Africa. <laughs> Do, however, ask your um, supermarket whether the avocados they get are from Halls and Sons and ask them to check whether it comes from Kwasi Sabantu okay. or not. Um, mm -hmm. But they, they have a radio station. They have a teacher's training college. They um, so they um, they earn millions. They happen to lose 160 million rand. Um, the, 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 our serious crime investigations unit is meant to be investigating, but again, I don't know what's happening with that. So they have a lot of clout. Firstly, because people have earned, 
well, I started speaking out 20 years ago. So people have been hearing rumors that this place isn't so great, but they have such a high standing and people are so reluctant and they're like, but what do these people lose their jobs? Well, no, I don't want to bring the industries to a close. I just want the money to go to the communities. It should go to, you know, and I want Mm -hmm. the, the, there to be oversight because groups like this, they are not accountable to any authority there is no accountability and there is no they they're a closed compound they can basically do what they like you know and we just have to take their word for it that they're not beating children in public anymore apparently that has stopped and that's probably because i wrote about it 20 years ago and there was a huge outcry then so Mm -hmm. you know they they but they denied it for the longest time. But now there are hundreds of us coming out saying, hang on, you know, this happened. So they can't it's deny it anymore. So now they just say, yeah, there were a few instances of excessive, but it was dealt with by, by church discipline. Like, hello, really? Is that good enough? And there's been no acknowledgement and, and, and no acknowledgement that they, that they no longer break the spirit of a child by the age of three. They... The authorities need to step in, and the authorities that should step in are the people who are supposed to protect children. They are the people, the labor department, to check that that that, that they are good working conditions, that they're being paid mm. um, at least the minimum wage. But I mean, these guys are flying around in four private planes, but their workers get minimum wage. You know, it's the disparity. Ugh, it, I genuinely don't know, but I do know that. Um, the leadership must be reformed. They need to, there needs to be reform and there needs to be accountability and there needs to be oversight. Yeah, it's a regular refrain. refrain. I mean, something that I talk about quite a lot um, in the, uh, the the podcasts I sometimes record on my own, which um, looks at organisations and, and cults as organisations. And, you know, if, um, take the UK, for example, there's lots of laws around the way you can treat people and the way that, you know, you, you mustn't discriminate against people on, on the basis of various protected characteristics, including gender, sexuality, um, race, and so on. And yet um, religions are exempt from those things. They are allowed to do that. Um, and it's in full view, you know. So mm. as a Jehovah's Witness, as a woman, forget the idea of ever being an elder. You know, that's never going to happen. So um, straight away there, you would come foul, you would fall foul of any oh, yeah. employment laws. But but that's okay because you're religion. Yeah. And mm. we all know that, I mean, it's very common for, like, the child abuse, um, you know. But, and this is in full like view. It's been talked about constantly. But where are we with it, you know? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a hesitancy to get involved, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I also believe that religions and churches should pay tax. Because yeah. then at least yeah. at least their books will then be open, you know, and you can mm-hmm. see mm-hmm. what's going on there and um mm-hmm. you know, so so they they should be the Ubuntu's constitution states that they are a public benefit organization and that money they make will be given back to the community. Well, it's given back to the community, but a handful of them, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's not, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a, it's a really good question. It's one that I'd, I'd like to take up uh, in much more detail um, uh, in, in, you know, in, a, in another episode really. Cause I, I want, I want to think about how, how societies like South Africa, like the UK, like the States, 
and lots of countries in Europe, you know, how countries that are obviously the right to be concerned about the rights of minorities and people's right to belief, and that's understandable, absolutely support that. But that cannot come at the cost of individuals like, like yourself who experience such um, such horror. That's, that cannot, it cannot be allowed. So, so this water bottling plant that they have, they were two brave women. Who, yeah. They were um, unmarried and they fell pregnant. Now, at Kwasi Zabanti, that is a complete no-no. You're not allowed to have a relationship, any kind of relationship mm. with if you're not married. Um, so they were fired. They were prevented from mm-hmm. coming to work. They were stopped at the gate right. and they were n- not allowed entry. This was back mm-hmm. in, the, uh, in the early 2000s. Um, two of them said, hang on, this is not right. They went to, they, they went to the CCMA, which is our body that, that investigates yeah. claims like that. And the court found that um, they had been unfairly dismissed and found that they needed to be paid um, the, a year's salary. Now, when mm-hmm. that number came out, I was horrified because it 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 was such a small amount that I can't imagine anybody can live on that. Do you know mm-hmm. what what Kwasi Zabanti did? They appealed that they didn't want to pay her like that tiny little fragment of money. Mm-hmm. They appealed and they lost the appeal. But sadly, she died in a car accident. Uh, I think a week oh. or two before the um. The appeal was denied, so she actually never even saw justice. Um, but she was brave because she took them on, and not many people do. And um, mm-hmm. so that's the one case that we know of where people were unfairly dismissed because they mm-hmm. had premarital sex, and you could see mm-hmm. yeah. that they had premarital yeah. sex. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And um, uh, for for Jehovah's Witnesses, they have um, they don't have these commercial interests that are obviously separate to the to the work they do. But they they certainly have um, have lots of money coming into the organisation through donations. And there's uh, they're all volunteers, so lots of the building work is done through voluntary uh, work and uh, and in the what used to be the printing. Which I still there is, I suppose there is some printing done. They're all volunteers in these Bethels, um, but none of those people will be protected by the. Uh, well, I'd be interested to see how much protection they they can get through through things like um, tribunals and so on. So yeah, it's it's something that that definitely needs to be highlighted. I think. Um, I, I wanted to talk to you briefly um, with the time we've got left, actually, about some of the some of the, the nice things that, that came out of your book, which um, made me smile. So, so music was one of them. So um, that your, your exposure to music as you, as you leave, um, we, we interviewed a, a young lady from the Amish community recently. And for her, it was country and Western music for you. What was it that, that sort of, that, that got into your soul? Oh, um, the first was Nana Muscuri. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. know if any of your listeners who are younger even know. Oh, I remember Nana Muscuri. Nana Muscuri. <laughs> yeah, Greek. Was she great? Greek? Yes, yeah, she was Greek. Mm. Yeah, yeah. The White yeah. Rose of Athens. and Yeah, <laughs> try to remember the time of September. Yeah, so Nana Muscuri and then, um, uh, yeah, and then I'd be introduced. So, so 
uh, I heard my first Queen song, I think, when I was 24 years old, you know. Right. And then I fell in love with Queen's music. And so really the music that I was exposed to would have been the people that I was with and what music they had because this was long yeah. before Spotify and, well, not that sure. I support Spotify with their recent anti-vax <laughs> Joe Rogan show, but um, yeah. Apple Music or, or whatever, yeah. you know, you couldn't just stream anything. You had to go and buy, I, I mean, CDs were progressive even, you know. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So it, for me, I think the, the music that moved me were the ones that had beautiful lyrics um, and melodies. Like I'm not really that into alternative rock what no I don't even know you know like house music is not my sure. thing <laughs> but um yeah it, it, and you it, went to a you went to a concert with Laura Laura, Laura Brannigan yes yeah. and he strutted around on that stage singing the power <laughs> of love and I was mesmerized I had no idea that a woman could have so much power and so much confidence and I had such a yearning to be her you know and to and to just be able to just be me and like it, she looked untouchable. It, it was it was magical. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. No, I think it's it's great. Though, things like that though are shouldn't be underestimated. I think in in a person's journey, you know, because it's discovering. I know for for me, we weren't quite as cosseted, obviously, but things that you know films that I was never allowed to watch and you watch for the first time and it's fantastic you know and you there's all this art that is available to you now once you leave this this group that you you you, you find yourself um so sometimes I have a little get together with some ex-Jehovah's Witnesses online um uh, I don't organize it um but um we talk about music that we've we've kind of enjoyed and one of the things i say is that i've i've got every i'm a 54 year old man therefore i have the the musical taste of a 54 year old man in many respects but not necessarily in the right order so my mm. my i discover things you know very late that i should have discovered when i was in my teens really and that but that's so exciting isn't it yeah, I have a cousin. I adore her, Karen, and she's much younger than me. So when I um, kind of um, ran away, she was still at school. And so we we laughed because we kind of went through our first real relationships at the same time. We kind of, right. she, we say that we went through adolescence and puberty and all that kind of at the same time, even though I'm yeah. 10 yeah. years, more than 10 years her senior, um, that we kind of had the same experiences. I was just had uh, arrested development. My my boyfriend mm. believes I have a pleasure deficit in my life, and we need to um, actively work on on um, bringing more pleasure into my life because it had been taken away so long. But I've 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 and there's something lovely about discovering beautiful new things. Mm. You know, it's like when you see your country through the eyes of a visitor. Um, and I yeah. think for many of my friends, especially in my 20s and 30s, they were kind of seeing the world through the eyes of a mm. relative newbie. So, yeah, mm. while it was scary, there was also, I mean, I write about some of the really funny things that happened to me in my book um, because I was so clueless. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that that is is one of the wonderful things and, and that's something that we like to 
stress on on the podcast that you know it is hard um leaving and it is difficult making sense mm. of the world that you that you find yourself in um some of the terminology you know you you talked about be you know the world and of course that's very much the way that we were raised being afraid of the world and the world is an evil place a wicked place and then you start to realize that yeah there are some terrible people in the world but there's also some great people and there's so much beauty and wonderful uh things to to enjoy and and that's something you start to uh you start to enjoy um there's a there's a word that i'm going to butcher an afrikaans word now i'm sure um uh garakachok <laughs> is that right yeah tell us about garakachok so when i was a little girl my dad um would pretend to be a lion or whatever and chase us and and that and one day i just got very scared and i sat down and i said garakachok i in my den i'm in my den garakachok and so right. garakachok became the word that if i said it my dad and my brother knew they had to like immediately stop it it, it was kind of a word that left that helped that kept me safe and i'm yes. in my den um, in other words, like you can't touch me. I'm in my den. And then throughout yeah, the book, yeah, I kind of, I kind of play with that word a little bit. Where I, mm. at the towards the end, I realize, but I am my den. It's not that yeah. you know, like I, I find my den. I, I actually, I am my den. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. You find that safety within yourself. You've yeah. internalized your own yes. ability to to be at one with yourself and to find safety. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, uh, right at the end of the book, you talk about demons and skeletons. So mm-hmm. maybe that's a that's a good place to uh, to sort of bring the conversation to a close. So tell us about the demons and the skeletons, Erica. Uh, so uh, 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 a word of. Um apology um i'm going to be mixing an awful lot of metaphors <laughs> that's cool we like that <laughs> but um i i felt um it it was after i was doing the as i was doing the podcast with um news 24 it's called exodus it's four episodes and it basically takes my story and that of my friend Pilo malinga who's a, who was a young zulu girl um, and it it weaves our stories together in a very beautiful way. It's only four episodes long. And the the producer, Dion Wiggett, asked me how this has all been. And I kind of said to him, I woke up the one morning with this absolute realization that when I left the mission, I like put all my skeletons in the closet. I I I, I no, I actually dug a big hole and with a with a big kist and I put all the demons and the skeletons in there and I covered it up with so much soil and I thought I'm over it you know I'm gonna get over it it's gone it's in my past it's in my past I'm living for my present and my future but then over the years they slowly made their way through the soil and they started coming out and like (laughs) these demons with their big brown glowing eyes and the skeletons rattling around and now I feel like I've released a lot of them and when one of them now appears I kind of look at them and go okay, I, well, I kind of think I've gotten rid of most of my demons, but I said, like, what do you want to teach me? Teach me, and then just get get lost. Mm-hmm. Go away. And the, the, I still have a few skeletons, because for me, the skeletons represent the things that I feel shame. Shame is such a powerful emotion, and they it, mm-hmm. it has ruled my life for so long. And, and there's still a few areas where I feel deep shame about um, things. And those, but this, but they're getting less because I, I take the skeleton appears and I go, okay, show me, let's, let's dance, you know, show me a few steps and I'll show you a few steps. And then 
the rattling bones kind of disappear as well. There's still a few skeletons, but maybe that's for my next book. I don't know. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I, I've absolutely thoroughly enjoyed, as I knew I would, talking to you, Erica. Thank you so much for mm-hmm. uh, for for coming on the show. And and also, I should mention that we uh, we spoke briefly on a, a Twitter Spaces that I, I did as my kind of experiment, and you just very graciously came on it. I didn't know who you were, mm-hmm. um, but you told me for the first time about this group, and um, and that was uh, that was my first recognition of it. I'd never heard of it before, which I suppose I, I should be ashamed of, really. No. Um, we we also got I got um approached by um Daniel Daniel Schreiker um so Daniel's coming on the show shortly as well and he's going to talk a little bit about the, the research that he's been doing but he said you know he said I've I've had some experiences but you need to speak to <laughs> Erica so um mm-hmm. yeah I've really enjoyed it thank oh, you so much for coming on the show thank you thank you it's been so lovely speaking to you um to both of you and 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 especially you Stephen because you I can tell like you know what I'm talking about because you also lived it yeah. you know and there's something Absolutely. really lovely about speaking um in that sense but your listeners are also in for a treat with Daniel he is so erudite and eloquent and he's able to really unpack the theology and the yeah he's he's brilliant I'm looking forward to that episode now myself (laughs) great okay brilliant well um that's great um thank you so much again for coming on the show um Erica Borman What Should I Think About is an Evil Sheep production.